been celebrating Earth Day now for more than 40 years. Yet there are still skeptics out there whenever you talk about the carbon emissions, whether they're damaging our planet, whether climate change is real. I'm Bob Long. We welcome you back to another edition of Stats and Stories. It's a program where we look at the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. Our focus today is on Earth Day and the environment. Joining me on Stats and Stories for our discussion today are Miami University Statistics Department Chair John Baylor, Media Journalism and Film Chair Richard Campbell. Our special guest today is Miami University's Distinguished Professor of Biology, also the Associate Provost for Research and Scholarship, and Dean of the Graduate School, Dr. Jim Orris. Jim, we welcome you to the show today. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. Before we talk to our special guest, Stats and Stories reporter Amanda Shoemaker tells us about plans for EarthFest in Oxford for 2014. Have you ever seen a bicycle-powered slushy machine? You might want to attend Oxford's annual EarthFest celebration in the Oxford Uptown Park Saturday, April 26 from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. The president of Miami's chapter of the National Association for Environmental Professionals, Anna Ginsky, has planned this year's festivities. She believes the bicycle-powered slushy machine will be a hit with EarthFest attendees, but there are many other activities as well. So it's definitely friendly of all ages. We've got a lot of stuff going on for, you know, kids um, of all ages and then adults of all ages. Kids will have a chance to win a bicycle, but not the one that makes slushies. They will be given a booklet and will receive a stamp for every booth they visit. Once they've collected all of the stamps, their name will be entered in a drawing for the bike. For adults, there will be free well water tests, information on the Butler County Regional Transportation Association, and papermaking demonstrations. EarthFest is a day when the Miami and Oxford communities come together to learn about eco-friendly practices as well as celebrate Earth Day. Twenty groups from Oxford and Miami will participate this year. Ginsky says the festival results from lots of hard work. What EarthFest is going to be is really a culmination of months of effort from many different stakeholders in the community, including the city of Oxford, including some of these different organizations and um, the university and so it's been kind of a big undertaking. Ginsky says she's glad to be a part of it. I really believe in conservation and, you know, kind of like bettering the environment in some way. And I think that part of that definitely strengthens when you get a community involved. Doing things on your own is great, but then also reaching out to others that can help to make those, you know, conservation ideas become reality is better. Weather is always a factor with outdoor events, but Ginsky is optimistic that the sun will be out April 26th. And I've already requested that the weather be very nice that day <laughs> from the universe, so hopefully it responds. But yeah, I think it depends on the weather. If the weather is really poor and it's rainy and, you know, frozen rain and whatnot, then maybe it's less interactive. Come rain or shine, EarthFest will go on. For Stats and Stories, I'm Amanda Shoemaker. Given the fact that my bias is that I'm a, a media history instructor and I'm always harping on my students about the importance of learning the lessons of history, let's go back to 1970 when Earth Day all got started. What was it that kind of prompted that whole movement back at that time? Earth Day and, and many of our uh, more recent environmental laws were uh, brought about or came about around about the same time. So through the 60s and, and up until uh, the late 60s, there was a lot of realization that the environment was degrading and our human health and environmental health was linked. And uh, 
Earth Day itself was was put together and proposed by many people, but in particular, one group of peace and environmental activists proposed April 22nd as the first Earth Day. Coincidence with that was the year before, Congress passed the first national legislation that declared environmental policy as a, a environmental quality as a policy for the United States, the National Environmental Policy Act of 1969. And then shortly following after that, another act, the Environmental Quality Improvement Act, was passed in 1970. Shortly after that, Earth Day. And then in 1970, in the fall, President Nixon uh, by executive order, founded the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. Yeah, I, I, I think a lot of people were surprised to to know that Nixon was president at the time all of that happened. And he also, I think, started OSHA as that, right around the same time, didn't he? Yeah, OSHA and Clean Water and Clean Air mm-hmm. Act uh, amendments were passed that same year. And a lot of other environmental legislation and human health safety legislation was passed by that Congress. John Baylor, I'll turn to you. So what kind of data led to to some of these decisions? Well, if you go back to uh, some of the origins of what I would call the environmental revolution of the 60s and 70s, a lot of this originated from industrial wastes that were uh, put into uh, hazardous waste landfills, left behind, uh, pollution in the air, and people started seeing higher incidence of disease and cancers or they saw uh, fish kills. And so the kinds of data that there was observational and anecdotal for the most part. So a group of people over in that neighborhood were sick, more sick than other people. Uh, Or we had fish kills on Lake Erie and lots of dead fish floating around. So a lot of anecdotal information. But around the same time, there were people in the government that were studying what kinds of chemicals were present and how they would uh, cause negative impacts in the environment. So in my field, which is aquatic ecology and toxicology, we used to take goldfish and put them in mayonnaise jars and try different levels of water from a lake or a river and see how many fish survived those exposures. So we literally started out by counting fish in mayonnaise jars. <laughs> I'm, I'm just kind of curious, but it seems like Southwest Ohio, where we're located, we've had our share of a lot of environmental issues. And you mentioned fish kills. I can think of some in the Great Miami and the Ohio River, uh, places like that. I wanted to kind of talk about how how things have maybe changed that way, what you've seen uh, through the years as far as aquatic uh, health of our environment around here. Well, around here, uh, we are an industrial area. And we also live on the Ohio River Corridor. And there are Every river mile from Pittsburgh to past Cincinnati, there's some kind of a facility, a coal pile, uh, a industrial site, storage sites, chemical sites. And so uh, back in the early years, the what I call the early years, the, <laughs> the 50s and 60s, those types of activities weren't regulated too heavily. Uh, now we have with Clean Water Act and national standards for what we call ambient water quality criteria, the, the characteristics of the chemicals that are in the water uh, at normal, if there are regular concentrations. We have limits on the kinds of chemicals and the kinds of activities that can go into the water, and those were uh, put together by the Clean Water Act. Same thing goes with our air quality. We have limits on the amount of uh, pollutants that can be released into the atmosphere and so the air is a lot cleaner and the water is a lot cleaner and safer too. 
Richard Campbell, go to you for the next question. Jim, one of the things that uh, I'm interested in here is in, is in terms of media coverage. And I have kind of two-part question. One, um, we have a, a hypothesis in those of us who do media criticism about agenda setting. And that one of the things that Earth Day did was put the environmental protection and those kinds of issues on the media agenda. And it started getting covered. Um, but there's also a criticism that typically the media just cover this once a year. You know, on Earth Day, there, there are a lot of uh, articles about this. So one would be, the first question is, what do you think of the general media coverage about these important issues? And the second part, and this, this is for John, too, those of you who do research and, and scholarship in this area, what kind of obligation do you feel you have to communicate this stuff to the broader public, and what kind of a challenge is that? Some people might not agree with me, but I feel it's our obligation morally and socially to get our work out to the public in a way that the public can understand. Uh, one of the things that I feel we need improvement on in the world is scientific literacy and getting our work out to the public in an understandable format can help with that. Uh, as scientists, most of us in, in my field uh, receive our funding from the federal government, from public sources, and we owe it to the taxpayers to let them know what they're spending their money on. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of, I feel strongly about that. In fact, I feel so strongly about it that every year we take between 10 and, and 20 science students to Columbus and to Washington, D.C. to meet with our uh, legislators and other public officials to talk about what they do and teach them how to communicate with uh, the public. Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in on that, too. I mean, I, I, I would agree with Jim completely. I think the translation of the message is a, is a critical aspect of what we do. I mean, one of the, the great challenges in, is, is trying to communicate technical ideas and technical concepts to, to a, a broader group. And, and some of these concepts, you know, are, are ones that, that embrace uncertainty and variability. And so trying to, to convey this, to, that, that it's just not known with certainty when, you, when you're drawing some of your conclusions, that there's still the possibility of being wrong, proves to be a real daunting task, especially in a, in a media where the message of a, a simple message is more attractive than a more complicated and nuanced one. Let, let, me, uh, let me give Jim a little uh, question on this, uh, just sort of reading your bio information. When, when I read <laughs> what it is uh, that your research interests are about, let me read this to you, and then you can talk about how do, we, how do I translate, I translate it. Yeah. <laughs> so your research interests include the photochemistry and toxicology of polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons in fish. <laughs> so I need to know what that means, and how would you talk about that to the general public? Okay. So what polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons are is a class of chemicals that are found in coal and oil and when you burn fossil fuels. So these are materials that are released into the atmosphere and into the water. They share characteristics that are similar to plant pigments like chlorophyll that suns, or plants use sun to harvest the energy to make food. These chemicals are similar in, in that they can absorb sunlight. So when they absorb sunlight, they take that energy in and they pass it on to other parts of the fish, and it actually causes sunburn. So when you read the bottle, uh, the back of your prescription medicine, and it says avoid exposure to sunlight when you take this drug, 
or some shampoos are the same. Those all have hydrocarbons in them that absorb sunlight and can pass that energy on and cause tissue damage. The, the best way that I can think of it is, is instead of putting on sunscreen like SPF 35 or SP 40, these hydrocarbons are like SPF minus 10,000. <laughs> <laughs> and fish, fish get sunburned. You're listening to Stats and Stories, where, again, we always discuss the t- statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics, and we're focusing on the environment today with Earth Day on April 22nd. I'm Bob Long. Our regular panelists are Miami University Statistics Department Chair John Baylor, Media Journalism and Film Chair Richard Campbell, and our special guest today is Miami University's Associate Provost for Research and Scholarship, Dr. Jim Orris, who's a distinguished professor of biology. We also wanted to find out what people on the street know about today's topic, so we asked them, when did we start celebrating Earth Day and who was the president at that time? I would think it would be sometime after a world war when people started appreciating world peace and the Earth. No clue, but I'm going to go with uh, probably sometime around the hippies. People started appreciating the Earth more, so <laughs> I don't know a president at all. Let's go 1970s. I think we first celebrated Earth Day um, in probably the middle of the Cold War, so like 70s, 80s. I think it was sometime in the early 70s, and I guess the president would have been Richard Nixon. I think it was President uh, Teddy Roosevelt, and it was during his presidency. Um, I'll say that the president was Lincoln, Lincoln and the issue was uh, logging. All right, so Jim, what I wanted to go to next You know, I I was reading some material where, again, NOAA came out with a study last fall uh, about the whole state of the climate. Yet, I know over the wintertime, because we've had this horrible winter here in in the Midwest and the Northeast, the the skeptics are out there just saying, oh, well, see, we told you this whole thing about climate change is a hoax. And I wanted you to kind of explain, there seems to be such a misunderstanding on this topic that still exists today. Yeah, so climate change is climate change. And so what we're not talking about global warming. The better way to think about it is the climate is changing. And the climate is changing at an unprecedented rate compared to anything we've seen in geological time ever. So it is changing. And when we mean change, we talk about fluctuations includes change. So right now what we're seeing are large fluctuations in what we're normally used to, which by now it's usually a little warmer and it's not freezing cold in March and April and May. And those are just fluctuations that we see. The same thing is true, though. I mean, like we've seen tremendous fluctuations in the number of tornadoes some years, number of hurricanes some years. So, so when we're talking about climate change, we're talking about all of those kinds of things that, that you can see. Right. And the severity of those fluctuations right. is right now what, what we're mostly concerned about. I want to jump in on this because uh, this might actually be helpful to me in talking to journalism students. Uh, we have this thing that we call false balance in journalism where you're supposed to tell two sides of the story. <laughs> and often it's it's it can be simplified in this issue as I'm going to go out and talk to two scientists who believe in climate change and two who don't. Okay. And that creates a kind of a false balance. So when I'm talking to journalism students about this issue and about how to represent it fairly, 
what would what would you, what would your instruction be here in terms of talking to experts and how many do you have to have and what about this sort of issue? Well, one has to take great care on how many people you talk to because right now the preponderance of scientific evidence is that climate change is happening and that humans are influencing climate change. So if you took two people who agree with the preponderance of science and two people who don't agree with the preponderance of science, it would look like it's a balanced argument when in fact it's not. Thank you. John Baylor. Yes. Uh, yeah, amen. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's nice to think of the, the preponderance of evidence maybe impacting the way that we, we view a, a topic. And I think that's a critic. When you were talking about the communication earlier, Richard, the, uh, I think this is, this is one aspect of it is to say that this is just not a coin flip in terms of, yes. of where you end up, that there's, right. there's more to this story. You know, Jim, I, I, you know, when you were mentioning earlier about some of the experiments that you were doing with the, uh, the uh, PAHs and UV contact and, and the illusion of sunscreen, I'm trying to picture you putting a sunscreen on a fish. But, but <laughs> <laughs> that, that's, that seems like a really difficult thing to do. But I, I, I'll try to keep that image out of my mind. And Add and, oil to water. And, and I, <laughs> I guess that's kind of what we're doing when we're putting sunscreen on, too. Exactly. We're, adding, we're adding oil to skin and then that's adding right. the water. Okay, yeah. that works. All right, so I, I know you've been involved in, in lots of um, – Lots of, of important problems and in, in investigating impact. And I, one one problem that I that I'd be curious for you to, to tell a little bit about is your experience with looking at the impact of jet skis at Lake Tahoe. So if you could just tell us a little bit about that story and okay. you know what what motivated the the inquiry and what kind of data and what kind of analysis did you do as part of as part of investigating that story? Okay. So back in the uh, mid to late 90s, we were invited out to Lake Tahoe, which is a 12-mile-wide, 22-mile-long, crystal-clear blue lake on the Sierra Nevada mountains between Nevada and California. There were many issues with what most people call jet skis, personal watercraft, personalized watercraft, or PWCs. And they're noisy. They uh, were uh, used heavily. They disturbed nearshore areas. But they also had an engine type that, that was a very old technology. It was called carbureted two-cycle engine. So that you think of your old outboard engine that you sit and you put it into the water and you see the oil sheen kind of move off the back of your boat and then turn that into a 150-horsepower engine that burns 100 gallons of fuel a day. That type of technology, of that 100 gallons of fuel, 25 gallons of that fuel would go into the lake unburned. So a tremendous amount of oil and gas were being dumped into the waters unburned just directly. So we were asked to assess the impacts of that and its potential. We looked at both the unburned components and the burned components, and we looked. We set up experiments in the north part of Lake Tahoe where there was a jet ski area. We did studies in the field where we collected water along where the jet skis were for the most part, and then we went out into the center of the lake where we thought it would be a control or reference area and did the same water collection. Took the water back to the shore, exposed organisms under natural sunlight, again, this photo enhancement of the toxicity, and observed that near shore, at the levels that were being produced by the jet skis, it was uh, harming 100% of the zooplankton, the small filter feeders in the lake, and about 50% of the small fish that we were testing. Unfortunately, or for whatever, better or for worse, our control site, two days after the jet ski weekend was over, all of that moved offshore, and we saw a diminished impact two days later 
out in the middle of the lake. So we saw the plume of the gasoline and combustion products going from near shore to offshore. So by Tuesday, the impact had moved out to the center of the lake. So those results were reported to the regional planning agency. And that, along with noise studies and disturbance studies and other information that came in, economic considerations, the regional planning agency decided that in 1999, that type of engine would be banned from the basin, Lake Tahoe Basin. How did that, uh, how did that get communicated in the media? Was this something that was reported well or was it uh, overlooked? Or how, how, did, how did your research get communicated to the uh, larger public? I was interviewed uh, probably 50 or 100 times in a month after the report was le- released. We went to hearings and meetings, and there were articles and articles. The, the one thing that uh, really resonates with the people in that area is the water quality and clarity of Lake Tahoe because the whole area is dependent mm-hmm. on the tourism, and, and the real estate values are based on the clarity and the color of the water. Very good. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and again, we're focusing this time on the importance of the environment, and especially with Earth Day coming up April 22nd. I'm Bob Long. Our regular panelists for the show are Miami University Statistics Department Chair John Baylor and Media Journalism and Film Chair Richard Campbell. Dr. Jim Morris, a distinguished professor of biology at Miami University, is our special guest. Uh, Jim's an associate provost for research and scholarship at Miami and also dean of the graduate school. For our topic today, we had a second question for folks on the street. What do you think sparked the start of the environmental movement? And it was because of urbanization and the industrialization and like realizing like nuclear weapons and how that all affects um, the world and the planet. I'm going to guess it was the conservation movement, which was prevalent during that time. Uh, the Teddy Roosevelt era, so saving instead of uh, reducing. But pesticides being used in farming, agriculture. When scientific research and the technology in that area started actually showing that we made an impact on the planet. I feel like climate change is probably a big one and also maybe like deforestation or like industrialization, things like that, you know, Um, people realizing the effect that like pollution and industry has on the environment. When the Cuyahoga River caught on fire, I think that was significant. (laughs) Next, we're going to move on to John Baylor for the next question. I'd I'd like to follow up on what we did just before the break when when we were talking about some of the coverage that you had had received after, after the reports were issued out in Lake Tahoe. Were there parts of it that you thought were done exceptionally well? And were there parts of it that, that you thought were, were not communicated as, as clearly and cleanly as you would be desired? There were, there were both sides. So I can say that there were some stories that were done very well, that, that uh, all of my information was represented carefully and correctly. Those uh, reporters and, and uh, media people did the right thing. They called me. We talked. They wrote their story. They did fact-checking afterwards, and everything was fine. But there were also some sensational reports. All the fish were going to die. Uh, <laughs> okay. the, the lake is – the lake is, you know, the economy of the lake is going to go away because we can't put boats on the lake anymore. And so there was extreme views as well. But by and large, the, the interviews that I had and the stories that were about my work were done pretty well. That's great. I'm just kind of curious. I know you, you're focused more on aquatic issues, but 
we're all concerned about carbon emissions in in the world and again some of the reporting that goes on with that i'm, I'm kind of curious to the, your take of where the united states we won't talk globally at first we'll just talk about the united states what kind of progress you feel we've made on this issue uh since we got started with earth day way back in the 1970s when we had far more smog and pollution right. uh in the air well a few years ago one of my phd students was looking at mercury in lakes and how that ends up in fish. Well, coincidentally, turns into that was a Clean Air Act issue. So the Clean Air Act worked on getting as much sulfur out of the air from coal-fired power plants as possible. Well, it turns out that an unintended consequence of the Clean Air Act by reducing sulfur emissions and the particulates, it also reduced mercury in the environment as well. So he was able to show how through looking at uh, lake sediments, and sediments in lakes record what happens in the atmosphere, those sediments showed that the amount of sulfur and the amount of mercury decreased significantly from around 1965 to 1970 through present time. So we're able to show that air pollution in the U.S., at least in the Midwest part of the U.S., has significantly declined over those years. How about globally, though? I think that's a, a, a big concern, especially as China and, and other nations have grown as well. Yeah, so everyone wants, to have, everyone wants to have the same standard of living as we do in the United States and the Western world. In order to do that, they need to burn a tremendous amount of fossil fuels to maintain that. If you go to Beijing right now, you'll be lucky to be able to see across the street mm-hmm. on a good day. Uh, the same thing. I was in Jakarta, Indonesia last year, and I was there for a week, and I didn't see blue sky one day. Hmm. So there are developing nations in the world that have severe health consequences and air pollution consequences. You know, one of the there, – there are many ways to study environmental hazards or frameworks for approaching these problems. One that, that we hear about are things like ecological risk assessment. Right. Yeah. Could you, could you just sort of give a sense of, of what that is and, okay. and how that might work? Okay. Uh, I had a little conversation about this this morning with some friends. A risk assessment is, is like the lottery. You know that someone's going to win. It's just not going to be you. <laughs> so that's – we try to figure out probabilities and, and – so the framework for ecological risk assessment in the United States has three parts. The first part is a problem formulation where you try and figure out and, and focus in on a specific problem. And then in order to do the risk assessment, there's two pieces you have to put together. One is what we call the uh, hazard assessment to find out how toxic or how dangerous something is. And then the second part is the exposure assessment, which provides how much of the material or stress you're going to be exposed to. Once you know how dangerous it is and you know how much you're going to be exposed to, then you can assess a probability that something bad is going to happen in that situation. How much is this related to uh, something else I would like you to translate for me, (laughs) where it says that one of your research interests is in the modeling and statistical analysis of toxicity dose-response relationships? Okay. So – One of the things that is of interest to me is figuring out how to best represent that hazard assessment part or how toxic or how dangerous something is. And when we do that, we look at different levels of the hazard, so a toxic chemical, and you look at from no chemical to a really high concentration of chemical 
and with intermediate steps in between. And you look to see how large of an effect on the organism that you're studying that has those different concentrations. So the dose is the milligrams per kilogram of material given to the animal or plant. And then you do different levels of doses. In the simplest terms, you take that, you plot it on a piece of graph paper where concentration's on the bottom axis and the level of effect is on the vertical axis, and you draw a line between the points. What makes that predictive then is that's your laboratory experiment, and you use that as a model to go out into the environment, measure what the exposure is, and then you put that on the graph where it belongs to predict what the hazard or the effect is. So that's the dose-response relationship. Very good. I understood that. <laughs> One final question still from John Baylor. All right. Jim, you know, we, we talk about um, – there, there are lots of ideas we try to communicate, Whether and you were asked earlier about that. If there's a certain experimental and or statistical concept that you would like to see better communicated or to, to educate you know, the public, public to understand better, what, what might that, that be? Wow, that's a hard one. Um, <laughs> well, at least it was the last one. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, well, here, here's one that I think would be really useful for the general public. Uh, I've done a fair number of conversations with attorneys. I've done depositions for environmental situations. And more than one lawyer that I've talked to has said, scientists have too many hands. Because we're always saying on one hand it's this and on the other hand it's that. So it's this idea that we can never be a 100 percent certain about anything that we say in science. Science is a uh, decision by probability. There's chances that you're right and chances that you're wrong. And the public really has a hard time understanding why you can say I'm only 95 percent certain about something. All right, Jim Morris, we want to thank you very much for sharing your insights with us for our Earth Day program, discussing the environment on this edition of Stats and Stories. If you'd like to share your thoughts on our program, you can send us an email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu. Be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we'll discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.